Hey everyone, happy holidays and welcome to episode 6 of News in the North. I'm Ezra. I'm Ben. I'm Medina. And I'm Andrew. This is a podcast for people who want to stay informed about Canadian politics. Which means it could also double as those apps that help people go to sleep. Except this podcast doesn't track how much REM sleep you get. Yeah, we don't have that sort of tech yet. Okay, everyone, we are extra lucky to have Adina back for a special segment, Woman's Issues Corner. A special little corner for women. Tell us, Adina, as a woman, what issues are women most concerned about these days? Well, thank you guys for allowing me the extra special chance to express my opinions. Obama and Trudeau agreed to preserve Arctic waters and land by limiting shipping rates and outlawing oil drilling both on the mainland and offshore. Basically, as the ice caps melt, it will open up shipping lanes in the Arctic Ocean, which we need apparently. But new measures would limit the routes these vessels could take so they avoid parts of the Arctic that have been protected. Strict limitations were also placed on mining activities, and a complete ban on drilling in the Arctic was imposed. This is the latest stop on Trudeau's I'm sorry for approving a pipeline tour. This particular announcement came as Trudeau heads to British Columbia to literally explain himself to voters and BC Premier Christy Clark, who, by the way, loves a good pipeline, but is testing the political waters to see if she could get behind this particular one. While in British Columbia, Trudeau urged those opposed to the pipeline to keep their protest legal, which is part of a pretty consistent message from the government, which is already trying to invoke an image of pipeline protesters as angsty hoodlums bent on anarchy. This is something pretty difficult to do when members of parliament from Trudeau's own party, as well as the mayor of Vancouver, oppose the pipeline. But something really, really easy to do when you gloss over their opposition and only concentrate on native protests. Huh, yeah, I guess that would make things a lot easier. Blaming the natives since 1867. Agricultural mismanagement means that there's a wheat shortage. Blame the natives! Some people find pipelines derisive and unnecessary da- and unnecessarily damaging. Blame the natives! Trudeau said in an interview that native tribes don't have veto power over the pipelines. Though Canada is also required by law to consult with native populations before constructing these sort of impactful projects. But if you only consult the native populations that are pro-pipeline, I'm sure you could get around that pesky little law. (laughs) I mean, the way that federal governments like to consult with natives is when they have these cool headdresses on. You know, for the good picture, and then promise absolutely nothing. Oh, you know it. The Canadian government's three favorite things are in order. Waiting for their turn to speak in the House of Commons, multi-party joint commissions on parliamentary procedure, and finally those like photo ops of white politicians in suits sitting across the table from natives with headdresses. You love that stuff. 
The worst is when there are native tribes who don't wear fancy headre- headdresses. Mm. I feel like government officials just refuse to meet with them then. Anyways, back to Arctic waters. The problem with the new measures is that the premier of the Northwest Territories complains that limiting of resource mining in the Arctic would not would be detrimental to the economic well-being of his territory's citizens. The premier also said he was not properly consulted before the announcements. Here we see that actually consulting premiers is much easier said than done because consulting with the Northwest Territories would definitely be walking back some of those promises Trudeau made in his announcement. Trudeau would rather upset the seven people who live in the Northwest Territories than everyone who lives in Alberta or British Columbia. This is the exact trade-off, because in order to approve a pipeline that the Albertans want, Trudeau has to balance the needs of environmentalists, and in order to appease the environmentalists in British Columbia, Trudeau has to be environmentally friendly. Not just environmentally friendly in British Columbia. Correct. Which is why he chooses to be environmentally, environmentally friendly in the only place in the world that both has no people living there and where there are pictures of a whole bunch of polar bears swimming in polluted waters. The Arctic. Or the zoo. On Wednesday, Quebec Premier Philippe Couillard, or however you pronounce his name, announced that the government would be launching an inquiry into the treatment of Aboriginal people. This announcement comes more than a month after some Quebec provincial police officers came under fire for allegedly sexually assaulting Aboriginal women. A bit of a spoiler alert, we have a pretty good idea of how Aboriginal people are treated in general. Not very well. Some of the women in that Val d'Or case we just mentioned allege that police officers would take them on starlight tours, which means picking someone up in their car driving to the edge of town and making that person walk back home to calm down or sober up. This practice has been reported all over the country, with aboriginals being specifically targeted for arbitrary reasons. Yeah, so basically we know the findings are going to be bad. It's all about how bad and what the exact details are. Some have given Premier Couliard some flack for making this announcement without members of the Native Women's Association of Canada or other Indigenous leaders present. But let's be real, this inquiry is not for Aboriginals. They know exactly how they are being treated and have been telling the government as much for decades. Absolutely. This is an inquiry for the Quebec government and by the Quebec government. The Native Women's Association of Canada had been urging the government to do an inquiry for months. But since Trudeau had already announced a national inquiry into the many cases of missing and murdered indigenous women. Wait, so there's an inquiry into a literal epidemic of native women being murdered and going missing, and yet Couillard is still wondering how aboriginals are being treated? Well, Couillard was hoping that the national inquiry would satisfy demands for a provincial inquiry, but apparently an inquiry looking into missing and murdered aboriginal women could would not cover sexually assaulted indigenous women. Gee whiz, go figure. Couliard is probably just using the national inquiry into missing and murdered Aboriginal women as an excuse for him dragging his feet, but now I'm sorry, but that excuse has worn itself out. 
For some reason, governments refuse to take meaningful action on indigenous peoples without an official study or inquiry, which makes absolutely no sense. I mean, can't there just be a law about reporting cases of sexual abuse committed by police or government officials? Wouldn't that be beneficial to everyone? And give women the power to get someone in trouble for sexual assault committed against them? I don't know. Not sure if their feeble female brains can do that correctly without lying. Their uterus just demands it. Right. Isn't the part of the brain that makes you not lie about egregious crimes committed against you undeveloped in women? It It really just takes a penis to know how to do that. Maybe if their husband or other male guardian slash keeper had to testify on the victim's behalf, everyone would feel more comfortable knowing that there is a reliable witness on hand. Without an inquiry, you could already know that natives need better housing, better economic process, and less abuse at the hands of police. Justin Trudeau just last week had to assure native leaders that the government was making progress on the re- on the re- Justin Trudeau just last week had to assure native leaders that the government is making progress on the recommendations of another massive national study, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a study that looked into the lingering effects of the residential school system. The commission went across the country collecting valuable statements and testimonies from victims of residential schools. Now, the victims are still alive because the last residential school, which, by the way, is a kind of school that took children away from their parents in order to literally abuse the native out of them, closed in 1996. Let's let that one sink in for a moment. 1996. Yeah. That's, up. That's before Ben was born. <laughs> That's such a good point. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, once a school has, like, a life expectancy and a mortality rate, then you really know something is wrong. Wait, like, if like a school has, like, a 95% mortality rate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission famously put forth 94 recommendations, which should have made it easier for the government to take action and address the effects of residential schools. Right, like putting generations of natives in a school system designed to destroy their culture and inflict trauma has some pretty serious side effects. The Harper government tacitly refused to implement any of the recommendations for reasons ranging from their lack of comfort with increasing welfare rates or putting more money into anything that isn't oil subsidies to a subscription to the belief that simply apologizing and abolishing residential schools is enough for the natives to get on with their lives. The Trudeau government is supposed to represent a new era in government-native relations. And in Trudeau's words, the government has made a lot of progress on many of the recommendations. Meaning that none of the 94 recommendations have really been acted on. These past few weeks have proven that Trudeau is not much more government has been historically. Which is why instead of announcing any concrete action on the truth and reconciliation recommendations, Trudeau announced that he and native leaders agreed to meet annually. Inspiring. All we ever get is recommendations and inquiries and studies. 
Maybe if anyone ever enacted any of the findings, there wouldn't be as much violence against indigenous women down the line. This week, the Canadian Radio Television and Telecommunications Commissions, or CRTC, declared internet access a basic service. Giving angsty middle schoolers new ammo when their parents tell them to get off the internet. But mom, it's a basic service. What this means is that unlimited and fast internet has to be available all over the country and the CRTC has to set out required minimum internet speeds that everyone could have access to. This is a really big announcement because it's really hard to open a business or submit a resume without internet. And ensuring that everyone in the country has access to this service means that geography will play less of a role in determining one's future. The CRTC did not guarantee that they would make internet any cheaper, though they are requiring that internet providers contribute to a $750 million fund to help expand internet to rural areas without the extra costs being passed on to consumers. Which is important because not passing, being scared of passing costs on to consumers is usually how big companies do get out of doing anything the government asks them to do. When the government says to raise minimum wage, they're like, it'll be more expensive for consumers. As if RBC's $10 billion budget surplus wouldn't withstand a wage increase. Don't tell us that TELUS is magically concerned about how much its consumers pay for their phone bills. The rates are so needlessly expensive already. Like, they already built the cell phone towers and paid them off. Your $60 a month for limited talk, text, and data is just to pad their wallet. If providing internet to rural communities is really going to raise prices, that's because TELUS just wants more money. The CRTC said that more competition will keep prices low. There is no need to force companies to do so. But I don't think that Bell is suddenly worried about any more competition. They'll probably just open like another Fido, which is a fake company whose prices aren't any cheaper but give the illusion of competition. That being said, the CRTC forced big telecom companies to charge smaller companies less rent on their cell phone and internet towers, which has meant a huge price drop for some small companies. The CRTC said that they were surprised by the anti-competitive practices that led to the incredibly expensive rates for some Canadians for no reason. Well, you're welcome to Canadian Telecom, CRTC. Telus, Rogers, and Bell declined to comment verbally. They instead released a selfie of the CEOs of all three companies sipping champagne while reclining on a pile of money that they do not even need. Wait, actually? No. (laughs) Stop it. It's a joke. It's so cute that the CRTC believes that economic competition will save consumers from the telecom industry. It's sort of like a high school model, model United Nations, where the Russian representative doesn't laugh dismissively at providing aid to Syrian rebels. It's so much more innocent. <laughs> the CRTC is just in a much simpler place, where there are rules and no collusion between Rogers, Bell, and Telus. <laughs> I find that 
for some reason, and really it's beyond me why this is the case, that many Canadians are not well acquainted with the provincial premiers. I can't imagine why. I, I think, and bear with me here, it's because some countries have like charismatic leaders. We just have people who happen to occupy government positions. During World War II, everyone knows that the leaders of the Allied forces were Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, Dwight Eisenhower, Joseph Stalin, and Roosevelt, all of which who, all of which led their countries. Does anyone even know who the Prime Minister of Canada was during World War II? Was it William Howard Taft? He was also a U.S. president. He's the most Canadian-sounding American president ever. Wasn't it Sir William Lyon Mackenzie King? Oh, was he the wartime prime minister who didn't let the Jews in or the Sikhs? Sir Robert Borden, prime minister during World War One, was the one who didn't let the Sikhs in. It's literally impossible to tell these people apart. Well, Sir William Lyon Mackenzie King, for his part, was famous for being the first to tell England that we want to make our own laws. Right, this happened sometime in the 40s, about 80 yeah, years. About, yeah, 80 years after cannabis founded. You know, the age where most people get their training wheels off. Yeah. Anyways, back to topic. The bar of a successful politician in this country is super low. Trudeau is basically considered our finest leader in history because people actually want to talk about him. It's not and even- to him. <laughs> that, that's important. It's not even fair to compare him to Harper. Harper was the kind of guy people only talked to when they were absolutely forced to. He was basically an absentee father. He never talked to native leaders, but sent them a check once a year. And like the drunk uncle you definitely don't want to talk to at Christmas dinner, he once sang an oldies rock song at some conservative party, and people remembered what was so charming about him in the first place. He's hip. He's with it. Yeah. Harper literally had escape routes in Parliament, or he and his caucus could ditch reporters. Certain staircases and hallways were off-limits to the press. In the same way that Kanye has an invisible spaceship he uses to escape difficult situations. Hey, uh, Kanye, well, what did you mean when you said that you support Donald Trump because Kim Kardashian gets her creative inspiration from Russian furs? And poof, he disappears. Now... I have a distinct feeling that the press was really okay not having to talk to Harper. Can you imagine, though, that happening in the U.S.? Obama keeps on telling us he's an introvert, and everyone's like, Okay, Mr. President, that's very nice. Now, could you please proceed to the Ellen Show interview and don't forget to dance? In Canada, I feel like in all of politics, we get just three extroverts a decade and their talent is completely wasted by the complete lack of media opportunities and events to showcase it. Probably why Trudeau has all those sketchy cash for access fundraisers. He really needs a social outlet, unless he just wants to hang out with Finance Minister Bill Murnau. <laughs> yeah, like that's his only real alternative. It's worth a chill. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, back to the premiers. There's 13 of them, and they occupy a pretty important place in Canadian politics because they're responsible for paying the three most important and prestigious people in modern society. Teachers, doctors, and garbage collectors. Tell me for a second you could live without a garbage collector, and I'll remind you that in other countries, instead of taking out the trash for the magical men and their miracle trucks to whisk it away, 
You have to take your leaky trash bags out to burn them in your backyard. Or throw it in the river, you know, that one that you bathe and drink from, makes it a little more difficult to throw leftover tuna casserole down, doesn't it? Trust me, it tastes much better as part of dinner than as part of your drinking water three weeks later. That's disgusting. <laughs> We're all about vivid imagery. Oh, yeah. yeah. Also, like, the three-year-olds won't have anything to go after. Like, garbage trucks are so much cooler than rivers. Oh, yeah. I know that premiers are universally boring, but in a way, that's kind of a good thing. Every once in a while, the United States gets a completely non-boring and inspirational state governor. But that's not a good thing. In fact, it usually is never a good thing. An inspirational leader in the States usually translates into like Mike Pence deciding to take his inspirational stand against the gays or that Governor George Wallace refuses to desegregate his schools. A different inspiration for different folks. This has been a big couple of weeks for Canadian premiers though. Last week they got to meet Joe Biden. Well, it must have been so much fun for them. I know. And they got to make climate ch change deals this week. And there were intense talks about how much money the federal government transfers to each province to help cover their health care bills. We'll get to that in a minute. The Trudeau government has made it official policy to consult early and often with territorial and provincial premiers on almost everything, meaning that his policies tend to reach a, a wide consensus, but also that more than ever his policies live and die with the provincial premiers. This has always been true to a certain extent because premiers generally have a majority government in their legislature and could therefore pass whatever laws they want, making it difficult to then pass legislation on the federal level without the approval of the premiers. But in the Harper years, the strategy was to talk to the premiers as little as humanly possible, as was his preference with literally everyone. This wasn't entirely Harper's fault, though, because to come to an agreement with premiers is very difficult for conservative governments. All premiers tend to want is more money from the federal government, something that conservatives never really want to give up. Also, during the Harper years, the only conservative premiers were leaving Alberta and some maritime provinces. Quebec is always liberal and, quite frankly, super weird and always wanting special arrangements. Ontario has been liberal for over a decade, same with BC, while Manitoba and Saskatchewan have been led by the NDP until the last few years. Trudeau loves announcing deals struck with all the premiers, but it would be strange for Harper to announce a deal struck by him, Alberta, New Brunswick, and the Yukon. Not really awe-inspiring, to say the least. Trudeau has a much easier time dealing with premiers. Right now, Quebec, led by Philippe Couillard, Ontario, led by Kathleen Wynne, and the Maritime Provinces, led by who cares, are governed by liberal leaders. They're all easily appeased by Trudeau, especially since every politician now knows how to deal with Quebec. You just have to make the announcement in French. Like your Canada. And say they get some more special le leeway. They're very easy to deal with these days. It gets more interesting out west. British Columbia is led by liberal Christy Clark, but she's pretty right wing and in an election year in a, pro in a province that hates pipelines and is dealing with an opioid crisis. 
Rachel Nawley is the NDP leader of Alberta, who Trudeau had to piece with pipelines, but she has generally been on his side. This, though, might change this week as the provinces prepare for discussions of health care funding with the federal government. Saskatchewan is led by Brad Wall of the Saskatchewan Party, which is a conservative liberal alliance to keep the NDP from its stranglehold on the Saskatchewan politics. But this Brad guy has been the conservative thorn in Trudeau's side, who basically just never wants to deal with him. Manitoba is led by Brian Pallister, a conservative who knows he should oppose Trudeau, but his province needs money so, so badly that he is willing to compromise. Wait, so we mentioned all the provinces. What about the territorial leaders? The territories are literally just the land so cold, the Canadian government has just decided to concede it to the First Nations and therefore don't care much about it. Except for the Yukon, because people found gold in it like 200 years ago, and it's still the only territory whose official languages are just English and French, not any Inuit or Aboriginal languages. The white man wants to keep the Yukon language accessible, in case there's any gold left. Now, this week, the premiers, or first ministers, as they are called for some reason... Maybe it's their ceremonial name? Okay, so the first ministers met with Trudeau to go over how much the federal government will contribute to healthcare costs in provinces and territories. This is super important because healthcare spending is literally the majority of some provinces' budget. Paying, paying hospital bills and doctors is very expensive. It used to be that the federal and provincial government would split the health care bill 50-50, but that became too expensive for the federal government as they started to cut taxes in the 80s. For the record, it became expensive for the provinces too. But provincial governments are responsible for health care, and it's basically impossible for provincial governments to shirk their health care responsibilities Unless they want to face the wrath of the people. But the federal government seems to have more leeway somehow. In the early 80s, the federal government began capping healthcare spending. So instead of 50-50, they would give a predetermined amount to every province. That amount started to grow by less and less that there were widespread doctor strikes in the 90s. Fast forward to 2006, where Harper decided to cap healthcare spending growth at... 6% a year, meaning that as the population grew, healthcare spending would increase by only 6%. The provinces are not pleased to say the least, but now Trudeau has offered only a 3% growth in healthcare spending, meaning that the federal share of healthcare costs would dip to less than 25%. And to appease their voters, the Liberals promised that some of the federal money would be earmarked for seniors and home care. But they're still cutting healthcare. Correct but they are distracting us with new ways to treat old people. Premiers and their cabinets, despite their differences, unanimously rejected this deal. But then New Brunswick ruined everything. Classic. Oh, old Brunswick They're is better. The worst guy. And agreed to have their healthcare capped at 3% growth or the growth of the GDP, whichever is higher. Harper's 6% growth caps were considered pretty detrimental to healthcare and meant that the provinces had to shed some covered services. The less money that comes into the healthcare system from the federal government means less services like eye exams, physiotherapy, or covered drug services for Canadian citizens because it's not like the provinces just magically come up with new money. They just cut stuff. And I think this episode uh, is going to be pretty bad for Trudeau's 
um, strategy of consulting with emirs in the future, as it seems like they have a hard time coming to agreements on some major policy proposals. Awesome.